Lord Jesus, this truth that you have us is such a comfort. Left up to our own devices, our own strength, our own devotion, our own discipline, we would surely have walked from you long ago. And you have kept us. God, we thank you that you are faithful to yourself, faithful to your own promises, faithful to your commitments, and that has caused you to be faithful to those on whom you've set your love. We don't deserve to belong to you. We don't deserve to be called by your name or to know you, to hear from you, to be blessed by you. We thank you this morning that we get to hear your word. And we trust your word is powerful, that it exposes in us what is unpleasing to you. And it brings the balm of the gospel and comfort by your Holy Spirit and truth. May you speak this morning through your word. May you be pleased to do in us what you intend by it. For your glory, uh, let us long to be those who are pleasing to you. Let us be those who love your appearing and who look forward to the day when all things are made right. God, we ask for help this morning for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans. Romans chapter 12. And we're continuing our way through this remarkable letter from God through the Apostle Paul. And the last section of Romans 12 verses 17 through 21 is the topic we'll be looking at. I want to read that together. All of this is under the banner of what it means to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, not conformed to the pattern of this world, but rescued by mercy and living under the reign of grace. Paul writes, verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's required of believers in this section of Scripture is nothing short of a supernatural requirement. It requires a dismantling of self under the reign of grace. It's only natural to repay evil for evil, to fight fire with fire. It's only natural to want revenge. In our culture, it's almost virtuous to take vengeance. And the dismantling of self required in these verses is difficult. And we need help. To zero in on one phrase in verse 19, Beloved, leave room for the wrath. Leave room for the wrath. It's going to be a tremendous help for us in setting aside self for the benefit of others. Now, you may have been to the local coffee shop and been asked the question, would you like me to leave room for cream? And what is intended is a three-quarter cup of coffee with room for you to add cream of some sort. To leave room for the wrath is nothing like that. It requires a totally empty cup When we understand what the wrath of God is, we understand that the full cup of the wrath of God is prepared for all those who don't know Jesus Christ. This week, I want to fast forward to God's courtroom where the judgment of God is issued and His eternal wrath begins. To help set the table for this section of Romans 12. And and the week following, I'd like to take us through a biblical survey of the doctrine of hell. To understand what the Bible says about eternal conscious torment for all those who don't know Jesus Christ. 
I am convinced that a right understanding of the wrath of God will be a tremendous help to us in laying aside self, in loving our enemies here, in praying for those who persecute us. Listen, if you could understand, for real, the wrath of God against someone who opposes you in this life, you would not want a pound of flesh. You would not want an ounce of revenge. You would not take evil for evil. You would be on your knees. You would weep and you would pray for those who persecute you. If only we could catch a glimpse of what they will face before Almighty God if they do not turn to Christ. And my friends, we need this help. So this week, we want to fast forward and I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look this morning at that great white throne judgment where Jesus will sit. And Jesus will assess the mass of humanity that does not belong to him, that does not know him, those people to whom he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I want to read for us this morning what I believe are the most serious, sobering, arresting words that have ever been penned. 130 words in the original. And these are the gravest in all of literature. I remember reading these words for the first time when I was eight years old. And they have profoundly affected my life since then. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a difficult passage of Scripture. The words themselves are not hard. The grammar is not cumbersome. The structure is not complicated. This is actually a very clear, straightforward, easy to understand portion of your Bible. But this is a difficult text. It's difficult because of what it so clearly says. And it says this, God will judge the wicked by their deeds and consign them to eternal punishment. God will judge the wicked by their deeds and consign them to eternal punishment. And sustained reflection on this topic is sickening. It turns my stomach to knots. This is not the portion of your Bible that you come to meditate on for comfort. In fact, we come to the edge of it, trembling. We take a peek and turn away and shudder. This is a passage we approach with trembling and we are apt to leave it quickly. But we need to spend some time here this morning. We need to come to grips with this passage and to do so we must look at it, read it, reflect on it, soak it in. And I believe we must be changed by it. This portion of your Bible describes the destruction, the destination of every human being. Every human being, that is, except those whose destinies have been radically altered by Jesus Christ. This passage is of utmost importance for everyone in this room. And we need to understand that God will judge the wicked by their deeds and consign them to eternal punishment. We're going to look this morning at five features of this judgment. We'll look at the judge, the judged, the evidence, 
the evaluation, and then the sentence. The context for this passage is the book of Revelation. John the Apostle is writing this, most likely in A.D. 95 or so. He's on the Isle of Patmos. It's the Alcatraz of the ancient world. It was an island rock in the middle of the Mediterranean where prisoners were kept. John was there because of his testimony of Christ. He was imprisoned. And this letter, the, this book of Revelation, records the future history of mankind given by God. And it contains several end-time judgments, and they're not all the same. There is, of course, the reward judgment for believers, what theologians call the Bema Seat Judgment where believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and thankfully our worthless things are burned up like straw and those things which God produced in us will last into eternity and be rewarded by him. There is the separation of believers and unbelievers at the end of the great tribulation into the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's the sheep and goats judgment. And then thirdly, there is this judgment of the dead at the end of time. This last one, this great white throne judgment, is what we're looking at this morning. So here are the five features of this judgment scene. The first is the judge. We see this in verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And we see here a throne. A throne. Over 30 times in the book of Revelation, thrones are mentioned. This is probably not a reference to thrones before. Otherwise, he would have said the throne. This is a new appearance. This is a unique throne. The purpose of this appearance is unique. And it is called a great throne. It is a large throne. It is intended to dwarf all those who stand before it. It is intimidating and humbling and daunting. Its size is in keeping with its significance. And it is a white throne. It is bright and pure and sinless and right. And John says there was one seated upon it. Someone is sitting on this throne. Someone glorious and mighty. This is God. And I believe specifically this is God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is seated on thrones prior to this in the book of Revelation. Oftentimes, God the Father is seated on a throne. But Jesus himself said in John 5, 22, The Father does not judge anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. In Acts 17, 31, Paul said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And he said again in 2 Timothy 4.1, Jesus Christ is to judge the living and the dead. It is Jesus through whom God judges. He is the one through whom all things were created. He is the one who became man at Bethlehem. The one who went to a cross and was himself judged by God for sin. Not his own sin, of course, but the sin of all who would believe. It is Jesus who will judge. It is Jesus who sits on this throne. And it is Jesus who sets everything right. He is the one true God here, holy, awesome, and unflinching. And notice in verse 11, from him, from his presence, earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This is the point in history where history ends. The universe as we know it dissolves. The physical universe is said to run away like a fugitive from the presence of the one who sits on this throne. Turn a few pages to the left to 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to how Peter describes this moment. 2 Peter 3, 7 By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And look down at verse 12. We are looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. 
At the elemental level, the physical universe dissolves. And this present heavens and present earth go away in the presence of the one who sits on the throne to make way for a new heavens and new earth. That's how chapter 21 of Revelation opens. What will it be like? What will we be like when there is no more Tempe, no more Maricopa County, no more Arizona, no more North America? The solid ground on which you have walked your entire life will not be there for you. Your home, which is a place of comfort and refuge for you now, will disappear. Every place you've ever known is gone. Everything familiar, all of it, away. And to stand alone, exposed, unprotected before Jesus Christ in front of all of His uncloaked glory, all the radiant outshining of His attributes, with nothing to stand on. What will it be like when every human relationship is all of a sudden irrelevant? When every temporal enjoyment is exposed for the vanity that it always was? When every vain pursuit is shown to be the emptiness and futility? Every possession is devoid of its meaning. He who dies with the most toys wins what? front row seat here at this great white throne. There's a second feature on display in this judgment. It's in verses 12 and 13, and we see next the dead, the judged. John says, and I saw the dead, verse 12. These are those who stand before the throne to be evaluated by God. Believers in Jesus Christ are not there. These are all of the wicked dead from all of human history. They did not participate in the resurrection described in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of those who are alive. They did not participate in the resurrection described in Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. That is the first resurrection, and blessed are those who partake in that one. That is the resurrection of those who died in Christ during the tribulation, Revelation 6 through 18. These, however, are all the dead from all time who died in their sins. And make no mistake, this is a resurrection. Everyone experiences a resurrection. As Daniel says in Daniel 12 too, some are resurrected to everlasting life and others are resurrected to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Everyone standing before this judgment throne was dead and is now very much alive. And notice John points out the great And the small in verse 12. The great people will be there. The popular, the powerful, the wealthy and the wise, the smart and the strong, athletes and actors, kings and commanders, the beautiful people, the exceptional people. And there's not one who has enough clout to exempt himself from this judgment. No one has enough money. No one has the right family connections. All the great men and great women of history are leveled at this judgment. This great white throne is the equalizer of all of humanity. Jesus Christ will be exalted and the proud will be brought low before him. And the little people will be there too. The kid who always get picked last in sports. The underachievers. The losers and the loners. The miserable and the oppressed. People who suffered hardship and poverty. Slaves and servants. The chronically ill. The disadvantaged and disenfranchised. No one is too small to be overlooked by this judgment. And suffering in this life does not qualify or exempt anyone from punishment in the next life. No one is so insignificant as to be missed by this judgment. Everyone who rejected Jesus, everyone who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, everyone who counted on his own goodness before God to merit some sort of heavenly favor, 
Listen, some people outright reject Jesus. Some people embrace Christian culture and stiff-arm Jesus. Some people are content with a casual attachment to Christian culture and Christian things, but have never yet surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will all be there. And John says they are standing before the throne. That is, they're standing for final judgment and for sentencing. And they stand before the one who is on the throne, and they have nothing to show for themselves except what they have done. Verse 13 tells us, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. Greek and Roman cultures speculated about what happened if you died at sea. The sea was a deep and dark mystery. There was an importance for burying people in the ground. But the reality here is no one is exempt. It doesn't matter how you died. It doesn't matter what has become of the physical remains of a human body. They will be reconstituted and reunited with the immaterial being. It doesn't matter if your body has been pushing poppies or feeding fish. There is a real resurrection And death and Hades gave up their dead, verse 13. Death here is that word for disintegration. That is the separation of the material body from the immaterial you. The mind, the soul, the heart, the spirit. Death is the separation of those things. When death gives up the dead, it means that there is a reintegration. The immaterial you joined to a new body. And Hades gives up the dead. Hades is the temporary abode of departed souls. Those who have died outside of Christ, outside of a relationship to God so far, are in Hades. That is a temporary place of torment until this final judgment. A resurrection is a rejoining of the physical and the immaterial. What will it be like? What will it be like for the wicked dead to have been immaterial, under torment, under God's wrath in Hades, only to be resurrected? To be given a new body fit for eternal existence and to show up in front of Jesus, only to be judged? What will it be like? The third feature of this great Judgment is the evidence. The evidence. Verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened. And they were judged from the content of the books. What are these books? These books are the evidence in two parts. And and the first part is the record of wrongs. Books plural. The dead were judged according to the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds, verse 12. These books contain the record of every evil deed committed by every individual standing before God on that day. No one will be able to say the evidence was not properly gathered or processed. The evidence is complete and accurate. It has not been altered, exaggerated, diminished, or tampered with in any way. The evidence on display in these books comes from the infallible memory of an omniscient, omnipresent God. He has been everywhere and He has known everything. He has seen everything. No deed has escaped His eye. No careless word has missed His ear. No stray thought has eluded His perception. Everything is laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. People are terrified today of metadata. Who is sitting at some bank of computers offshore is paying attention to everything that I say and do? That's nothing. Jeremiah 23, 24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares Yahweh? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares Yahweh? What people should fear is God. The second part of the evidence here 
is the registry of life. It is called here the book of life. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, it is called the Lamb's book of life or the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. This is the record of those who belong to Christ. Singular book with all the names of all those that have been purchased by Jesus' blood. And the second piece of evidence is utterly tragic for those who stand there at that great white throne because their names are not in that book, that book of mercy, that book of life, that book of hope, and their names are not found there. Especially deflating. Those other books have your name and everything you've ever done, but but that one book, the book of life, The evidence is on display. Everything you've ever done, said, thought is actually a liability. And and humans tend to think, look, I've, I've done some good things and I've done some bad things. No, every single thing you've ever done is in those books. If you have not been rescued by Christ, then your best deeds, God says, are filthy rags. They are assessed as that which has been done maybe relatively better than some other sinner, but not for God's glory and not empowered by His Spirit, and not done in a way that meets His standards. And every hope that you have in the so-called good things you've done is itself an evil deed and an offense and affront to a holy God. And that's in the books too. This is the opposite of the way we tend to think. We tend to prize our own accomplishments. That will not stand at the great white throne. What will it be like? What will it be like to have everything you've ever done on display? To hear the books open? And to know that nothing you ever did was ever really secret? And to know in the pit of your stomach that anything that is about to be revealed is absolutely undeniable? There's a fourth feature of this judgment. It's in verses 12 and 13. It is the evaluation. We've seen the judge, those judged, the evidence, and now comes the evaluation. In verse 12, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And in verse 13, they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Listen, this judgment is personal, it is accurate, and it is final. Notice how verse 13 is written. They were judged. The the subject there is plural. The the entire group is being judged. And yet you have this phrase following, every one of them. The verse literally reads, each one, each one individual, they were judged. This judgment is personal. No one is lost in the crowd. Even though there is a mass of humanity there, there is not going to be comfort in misery. The complete record of each individual person is assessed. This judgment is not only personal, it is also accurate. It is not arbitrary. God judges without partiality. There's no favoritism. God gives no consideration here to your wealth, to your ethnic background, to your beauty, fame, earthly power, family lineage, circumstances. What are judged here are deeds. What human beings actually did while alive on the earth. All of them. Every action, every word, every thought, every secret motive. Paul says in Romans 2, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Jesus said that words would be judged. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Thoughts are known and assessed. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, Even before the word is on my tongue, O Yahweh, you know it. And Paul says in Romans 2.16, The day when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Everything you've kept from those closest to you, you have not kept from God. 
Listen to Jeremiah 17.10. I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. There are degrees of punishment in hell. God said it would be more tolerable for Sodom than for the generation of unbelievers who saw, who met Jesus, who witnessed the miracles, and who rejected him. Jesus said in Luke 12, there would be fewer lashes for some and more lashes for others. He said, to whom much has been given, much is expected. Listen, that reality is especially frightening for all who are here this morning, who are hearing God's truth. There is an accountability for hearing about this judgment if you would still stiff arm the love of God through Jesus Christ that would rescue you from this judgment. Every human action will be shown for what it truly is, laid bare, all the secret motives. Listen, this judgment will not be based on good intentions. Why? Because sinful men don't have them. Genesis 6-5, God's assessment is the intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. Until there's a radical transformation in the heart, your best intentions are judgeable by God. Philippians 3, Paul looked back at his own and said it was all trash. This judgment is personal and accurate, and it is final. Every mouth will be silenced by the absolute rightness of this judgment. No excuses, no blame shifting, no comparisons. There are no lawyers, no advocates, no jury of peers. There's no point of order. There's no appeal. Your buddies can't stand up for you. There's going to be no one to go, go to bat for you. No one to speak up for you. Listen, skeptics have often complained about evil in the world. right? How could God exist if there's evil in the world? You need to understand, God will take care of the evil. And he'll take care of the skeptics who complained against God for not taking care of the evil. This judgment throne of God's here in Revelation 20 is God's own vindication. It is the answer to the complaint, why do bad things happen? God will judge all those bad things. And he's been patient and merciful to us perpetrators of bad things. Giving time and opportunity to hear, to believe to trust in Him and be saved. The Bible already knows that the skeptics would ask that question anyway. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given more fully to do evil. What do skeptics do? They say, they take God's patience and they fill in that gap with more rebellion. And to a tragic end. God is good and patient. God is good, meaning he will judge evil. And every cry for justice will be answered. Every evil will be dealt with. Every mass murderer, every genocide, every school shooter, every theft, every adultery, every evil thought, every lustful thought, all greed, all idolatry, all complaining and discontentment, all disobedience to parents. There is no wrong that will not be set right. Listen, you and I ought to be filled with love for God, with the whole heart, whole mind. Every failure to love God with the whole heart will be addressed. Every failure to love others. Every time someone suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, all will be dealt with. Leave room for the wrath, beloved. Because every time someone crossed you, cheated you, spoke unkindly to you, slandered you, insulted you, do you understand that every time someone sinned against you, they have committed a much greater crime than you have ever realized, could ever realize. They have crossed their maker. Maker. 
and they will meet him. He will have his day. He will have his vengeance. He will vindicate his name and his honor. And he will repay every evil deed. What will it be like? What will it be like to have deceived yourself into thinking that you were better than the next guy? And then to have all of your righteousnesses exposed as filthy rags? What will it be like to have put off God and said, I'll get to that later, I'll get to that later, I'll get to that later, and show up here, never having turned to Christ? There is a fifth feature of this judgment. It is the sentence. The sentence. Verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades here are personified. Death, that separation of body and soul, and Hades, that temporary abode of the wicked dead. They're personified and themselves thrown into the lake of fire. Paul called death the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. There is a day coming when death itself dies. That paves the way for a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21 says there is no more death. It doesn't even exist because death itself dies, cast into the lake of fire. In other words, Jesus gets the last word. He is truly victor and all those who belong to him victors over death itself. And Hades, the temporary abode of disembodied spirits, done away with forever. No more need. From that point on, there will be no more wicked. <laughs> Revelation 21.4 makes the promise, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more death. Why? Because the first things have passed away. And what is this lake of fire? This corresponds to Gehenna in your Bible or the word hell. It is what we'll look at in a biblical survey next week. It is eternal conscious torment by God. It is real, literal, unending, physical punishment under the unswerving anger of God the good, God the just, God the right, God the powerful. Notice what is written in verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is terrifying. It is terrifying because it is so final. There's no second chance here. There's no post-mortem evangelism. There's no purgatory the idea that you could go into fire medieval Catholic style for a little while and get cleaned up until you're fit to be in heaven. That's a myth. There is no reincarnation. Come back for another chance as a caterpillar. This is final. Throughout the Bible, God has threatened to repay. And on this great day, he will do exactly as he has said. By the way, there will be no annihilation. That you just sort of go out of existence. No, you will be resurrected to be fit for eternity to face God's judgment. We're at the end of this passage. Is this all there is? Is this all there is to say, appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment? Hebrews 9, 27. Is there any hope? Yes, for you, here, now. There is hope. To understand this great white throne judgment properly is to get a better glimpse at what was truly happening at another judgment, on a cross, on a hill, outside of Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. And you have to look behind the scenes to see it. On the surface, you have the 
torture and the execution of a petty popular religious renegade at the hands of the mighty Roman Empire. But what wasn't seen, what could not be seen, was the decisive event of all of history, the turning point in the timeline of the universe. And could it be today, friend, the turning point in your own life? The same things we see in Revelation 20 are the very same things on display at that cross. There was a judge. And the judge was God the Father. It pleased the Father to crush the Son, Isaiah 53 says. And there was the judged. But the judged there was Jesus. Like a lamb before the slaughter, he was crushed for our iniquities. The evidence... The evidence was there. It was the record of my evil deeds. The evil deeds of everyone who had ever placed their faith in Christ. All their sins, past, present, and future. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus, who never sinned, who didn't even know sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And then the evaluation. God assessed the innocent And counted him guilty. Jesus the righteous. Counted guilty. The guilty was declared righteous. So that the righteous. So that the. uh, Set it backwards. The righteous was declared guilty. So that we the guilty could be declared righteous. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died for sins. The just in the place of the unjust. To bring us to God. And what was the sentence for him? Death. Death as a substitute at my execution. And Jesus' death on the cross was unlike a physical death that any human could ever bear. Because at the cross, Jesus became the sin bearer and the wrath extinguisher in those hours as he hung on the cross between heaven and earth. Jesus in his infinite being was able to absorb and fully extinguish the infinite wrath of God against all who would ever believe so that Jesus could endure in hours at a cross what would take a finite being forever to endure in hell. And Jesus took all of it. Every ounce of it. He said he would drink the cup of his father's wrath empty down to the dregs, so that there is nothing left of wrath for those who belong to Christ. Infinite fury, all taken upon him, so that he could exhaust it as only he could do. And so for all who are in Christ... For those who are not at the great white throne judgment, who have been rescued from that judgment... That which is scarlet has been made white as snow. Our sins have been removed from us as far as east is from west. Our sins have been taken away, forgiven, punished, paid for, erased. And the sinner is acquitted, adopted, purchased, loved, set apart, rescued, reconciled, declared righteous. God is willing to say over you, Christian, you have never done anything wrong and you have always done everything right. And then there is resurrection. The one who opened his own tomb in victory over death opens the grave for all who believe in him. He has purchased real physical bodily resurrection for all who believe in him. We need to think about this. We need to think about this in terms of what Romans is telling us to do. To set aside self under the reign of God's unbelievable grace, to put self to death, and to love enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us, and to leave room for the wrath, to not take vengeance, beloved. I'm convinced if we have a right view of what is coming for those who are outside of Christ, 
we would not want revenge. We would rather plead and pray on their behalf that God would be gracious to forgive them. And have you ever thought about what it means to ask God to forgive a sinner? God, would you take your infinite, right, beautiful, just, good fury against wickedness? And would you pour it out on your son in place of that one? Just like you did for me. Friends, could we pray like that for our enemies? Could we long for that? For those who mistreat us? I'm convinced we would if we see this rightly. If you could imagine what it would be like for someone to be standing in that line to be exposed to be sentenced and to be thrown. You would only wish that you had loved and preached the gospel to that one in this life. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you're, you're still alive. You're still breathing God's oxygen. You're walking his earth. One day that oxygen will be gone, the earth will be gone. You're on borrowed time, you're on borrowed breaths. But you can believe today and you will find your name to have been written in that book of life. Listen to Jesus' promise from John chapter 5 and verse 24. Here is Jesus' gracious invitation. And he says to you this morning through his word, John five twenty four. Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. If you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, you will immediately possess eternal life and be out of the category of judgment altogether. Listen, that is not a thing you can earn by cleaning up your life. That is not a thing you can merit by doing gooder. You can't make up for who you are and for all that you've already done. All you can do is cry out for mercy and plead with God to forgive you on the basis of his son's blood. And you do that in faith, casting your life into his hands and he will give you life. He will forgive your sin. He will exempt you from the judgment that is to come. Listen, Jesus is the one who will judge and he offers you this day forgiveness and life and rescue and escape. And he knows he was the one who himself already was judged for sin. He is the only one who can speak to what this judgment is actually like. And he is the one who offers you this day forgiveness. Christians, let's think together a moment. Some takeaways for us. We toy with sin. We take it lightly. We forget sometimes that the residual sin in our own hearts, the tendencies toward old nature things, that we entertain and and, and perpetrate things that people will spend an eternity under the wrath of God for. We need to take sin more seriously. We need to take sin more seriously in thinking what it was that Jesus endured to forgive our sin. Can, can we really look to our Savior on the cross, enduring these things on our behalf, and then look towards darling sins with affections again? We need to come back to this reality. We, we need to think about eternal judgment and a great white throne and we need to think about a cross often. A regular meditation for us. And of course we need to think differently about other people's sin. I respond to other people's sin as if I were the one most grievously offended. I'm not. Can I have compassion? And can I wait for God to set things right? There's a takeaway for us related to evangelism, missions. We, we watch the world careening toward this great white throne judgment without ever hearing of a Savior. 
without having God's word in their language, without having access to someone proclaiming, without seeing or even knowing of a gospel-proclaiming church. We need to pray more that God would raise up and send people to the ends of the earth. We need to pray for our friends who are laboring on the other side of the world even now. When is the last time you thought about your own sin and thought about what you truly deserved? I believe a regular meditation on this topic ought to produce in us louder singing, greater gratitude, more joy in what Jesus Christ has purchased for us in the cross. We're going to close our service doing just that, singing Jesus, thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, these are sobering words. And yet this is history, true history from the future. You've been kind to tell us what will take place. To prepare us, to shape us even now, to make us more as we should be in fidelity to you, urgency with the gospel, soft-heartedness towards enemies, and also a longing for your vindication when you will set everything right and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you indeed are Lord. Truly, we long for that day. God, we pray that you would use this text in our hearts to do things that will last in us, to shape us, to be fit for live for these few moments we have on this earth, to be effective, to be faithful, to be tools in your hands, to have others see the love of Christ in us, to hear the gospel from our lips, to see humility in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name.